This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Malcolm Turnbull, welcome to Better Reading. Great to be with you, Cheryl. So for those of you that don't know Malcolm, he's Australia's 29th Prime Minister. He's here to talk to us today about his uh, biography. Malcolm took over the nation's top job. There was a sense of excitement at the time in Australia, and I remember personally being excited. Sky-high opinion polls followed as the political outsider with a successful business, legal and media career took charge. The infighting that had dogged politics for the best part of the decade looked to be over. And honestly, we were all feeling really hopeful. I know I was. But a right-wing insurgency brutally cut down Turnbull's time in office after three years, leaving many Australians asking why. Now, Malcolm, I'm a Labor person through and through, so I guess I should declare that right now. However, um, I was speaking to a friend of mine um, who's living in San Francisco at the moment, and I said I'd be chatting with you. And he said, you know what I think of Malcolm? I think he's always been on the right side of history at every point, but he's been on the wrong side politically. Mm. Yeah, okay. Well, that's that. Well, I'm glad he thinks I was on the right side of history. Uh, Wrong side politically. So, what he's saying is that I should have been in the Labor Party, I suppose. I think that's what he's saying. Yeah, well, a lot of people say that. And I talk about that in the book. You know, I have a, uh, you know, my mother was a Labor historian, among other things. And I've got a, in her great Labor tradition in her family, uh, the Lansbury's. But I, um, yeah, I, you know, I've always been a, a small, I, I'm, a, you know, labels politically are, are kind of meaningless nowadays. I mean, most of the people who call themselves conservatives wouldn't know the difference between Edmund Burke and Tony Burke. You know, the, most, most people who call themselves conservatives in politics nowadays are sort of right-wing populist reactionaries in my experience. But I would say... I'm a small L liberal. I'm a great believer in freedom. I believe that the uh, I'm sceptical about government in the sense that I, you know, I don't believe that government knows best. I think that government's job is to enable us to do our best. And so, you know, when I was a young person, you know, going back 40, 50 years, I felt the Liberal Party was a better home for a small L liberal like me than Labor even though I have always had a lot of friends in the Labor Party. And I would say that that was more true then than it is now. I mean, of course, there is an argument that the Labor Party is, in fact, a Liberal Party. Uh, You know, Andrew Lee, uh, who's a very thoughtful federal MP, uh, Labor MP from Canberra, but underappreciated, I think, to be honest, by his colleagues. But Andrew, you know, makes the case that Labor's the real home for smaller Liberals nowadays. Interestingly, Lenin also thought that too. Uh, he actually said, um, described the Australian Labor Party as just a Liberal Party. You know, he said that 
dripping with contempt, of course. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) That wasn't a compliment. But Um, anyway, I mean, be that as it may, you know, whether it was the right choice or the wrong choice, it was the choice I made. And, you know, I got a fair bit done, which I couldn't have got done without the support of the Liberal Party, although that support was... Uh, you know, had its ups and downs. I want to tell you that um, recently after Scott Morrison's win and I was feeling bitterly disappointed at the time and I was feeling very disappointed at what happened to you, somebody said to me, you know, the problem with you, Cheryl, is that you're such a snob, that's why you vote Labor. And I thought, oh, ouch, when did that turn around? That's an interesting comment because I think what Scott Morrison and the Liberal Party have managed to convince people is that they're now a working-class party, which I think is a rort. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, well, I think the... Okay, so this is is what I think really is the big issue. Hmm. What uh, has happened is that people increasingly are not voting on the basis of economic interest, workers voting for Labor, you know, small business and middle-class voting Liberal, you know, which is the old paradigm. Yeah. What you're now seeing is people voting on cultural issues and the right-wing populists, and, I, you know, I wouldn't describe Morrison as a right-wing populist, by the way, but, you know, but you can, I mean, Trump's a good, you know, classic Mm. example of this, are basically mobilising working class voters to vote for leaders and parties which have not traditionally represented people, you know, in those those sort of economic circumstances uh, because of cultural issues. So it might be, you know, in America, you know, obviously guns is always a big one, but immigration. Abortion. uh, Abortion. But in um, the uh, immigration as an issue uh, was mobilised to get people in the UK in working class constituencies to vote for Brexit when manifestly Brexit is contrary to their economic interests. Mm. I mean, uh, if you're in manufacturing industrial part of the UK, the proposition that you will be better off in an age of rising protectionism by withdrawing from the largest free trade zone in the world is crackers, mm-hmm. right? Now, you could make a case that, you, you, look, you, you can make cases that, you know, parts of the UK economy could do well, you know, maybe the City of London's, you know, shown itself to have a, you know, a degree of agility over the years. But, you know, if you're working in a car plant in the Midlands and most of your market is in Europe, are you kidding? Mm. I mean, of course you're going to, I mean, that plant is not going to stay there. Someone you know will, what? Someone yeah, will yeah. say, let's move it to, you know, Poland. Yeah. <laughs> I agree with you. I agree with you. But do you know where I, when I've been thinking about you and thinking about talking to you today, in a sense, you belong to the same political group as Donald Trump Boris Johnson, Benjamin Netanyahu, and I do, I can't well, help well, feeling not, you're the odd, right. one, odd one out. Well, isn't no, it? No, well, 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 I mean... conservative it's, politics, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, but you see, but this is, but this is getting back to this point about conservatism. I mean, if I was an American, I would not be a member of the Republican Party, you know, at least not today. This is the problem. This is my point about labels, right? 
So there are people who call themselves conservatives but are absolutely not conservative. I mean, the right-wing populist tendency, you know, theme or I don't know. It's built on hatred. Well, well, it is. Okay, but okay, let's look at how do we define conservatism. Conservatism is actually quite similar to Fabianism, by the way, It's which, of course, is a Labor, you know, Labor tradition. But essentially what a conservative does, a conservative says, well, and this is going all the way back to Burke, they say, okay, we've got, you know, here is our society, it's organic, it's working, yes, it's going to change, but we will build on the old and, you know, bring an, you know, we'll, we'll build, as, as, as Quentin Hogg wrote once in that great book, The Case for Conservatism, which has been out of print for years, Hogg said, you know, we, we build on the rich subsoil of British British tradition, I think, or political culture, you know, as we change. And, you know, that's the, that's, that, that's the sort of the conservative idea, that you don't just throw things aside in a revolutionary way. And so you respect established institutions. And yet you see with Trump, for example, um, he, he is attacking ev- virtually every institution. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is common with the right-wing populist brigade. So they're not conservatives. And people who are attacking the rule of law, attacking courts, you know, attacking the integrity of the law enforcement agencies and all of that kind of thing, that is not what a conservative does. A conservative tries to support and improve those institutions, not denigrate them. Mm. Okay, let's talk about the right wing, the people, you know, for instance, Tony Abbott and Peter yeah, Dutton. Yeah, yeah. I read somewhere while I was doing my research here that um, that you said that they behave like terrorists. Yeah. Um, and, did, you know, yeah. yeah, I want you to explain. Well, well, let, well, let, well, let me unpack that. Okay. Yeah. So, obviously, I hasten to add I'm not suggesting they're engaged in, you know, uh, using in violence, you know, physical violence. Using no, you said they behave like anything so. like that. Yeah. So, so, okay, the tactic of the terrorist is typically, because they're in a minority, typically to terrorise the majority. It's the propaganda of the deed, you know, is one way of describing it. But what a terrorist basically says is, until you, the government, give in to me, I will keep blowing things up, Right. And so what the right of the Liberal Party has done is they are terrorising and holding hostage the Liberal Party at present. And in due course, they may well become the majority. And what the way they operate is they basically say they do not accept the premise of a political party. So the premise of a political party, of a big tent political party, like the Liberal Party or the Labor Party, is that you get a bunch of people in a room who are broadly have got, you know, broad philosophical views in common. That's the ideal anyway. Uh, But you get together, you've got issues, you thrash them out, you debate them, and then you come to a consensus, which, you know, typically means a majority. And those people who are in the minority say, oh, well, I didn't win that argument, but I'll go along with everyone else. That's the solidarity part of it. What the right do, and they did this, in um, 09 over climate change, and they did it again over the National Energy Guarantee, is they say, if you do not give in to us, we'll blow the joint up. And so, you know, there's a passage uh, in my book quoting, well, I mean, there's quite a lot of evidence for this in my book. I mean, the essentially the coup in August was designed to essentially intimidate people in the middle 
to give in, in in order to give in to the insurgency. They couldn't take the insurgency and the chaos that was being created. And so to, to stop it, they gave in to the terrorists. And that was exactly what Corman said to me in my office. You know, I mean, you've got to re- reflect on this. This is the leader of the government in the Senate, one of the most important people in the country, says to the Prime Minister, you've got to give in to the terrorists. Mm. Now, that, you know, that's why I... Just, you know, you know, I, I very nearly called an election that week and, you know, sometimes I think I should have, mm. but it was probably the right decision not to. But it was, it was, as I said, a degrading and corrupt parody of democracy. And this is what I'm sensing, that, that, that global leadership is that at the moment. And I can't help feeling, and, and I'm sure you'll have a view on this, that a lot of this comes from fear and hatred and, you know, greed as well. It isn't what people vote for, is it? Well, I, I don't, well, no, well, I mean, greed and hatred are emotions that are very relevant at the ballot box. I mean, people will vote in their own, uh, you know, greed. You know, greed's a strong term, but if you if you say financial self-interest, to use less loaded language, people absolutely hit pocket. That's why they say the hit pocket nerve is the most sensitive in politics. Uh, and in terms of hatred, man, hatred is hatred is particularly hatred of the other. That's a huge motivator. I mean the. And again, hatred is a is a heavily loaded word. But I mean, I, for example, look at Europe. I do not believe, and I this is not just my view. This is the view of many European leaders at the time. I do not believe that the Brexit vote would have been carried in the UK in 2016 had Angela Merkel not allowed a million Syrians or people from the Syrian conflict zone to effectively walk into Germany. Right. I agree with you totally. And. I mean, that was one of the great, and I am an undiluted admirer of Angela Merkel. She's one of the greatest leaders of our time. But that was a terrible mistake. You know, long on compassion, but that's about it. It was, it, and it, it created so many problems. It basically empowered the populist right, both in her country and everywhere else. You know, and that's why, you know, one of the points I make, I've made in office and I've made in my book was that, you have to, despite criticism you'll get from the left, you have to, a government has to be able to control its borders. You know, when, when Howard said, you know, we decide who comes to Australia and the circumstances in which they come, you know, often parodied, that was actually a penetrating glimpse of the obvious because... But the what public, about Tampa? Yeah, well, the, the, exactly. But the public demand, I mean, I know it, it is, it's, it's, there are all sorts of problems in the execution of that kind of policy, but the public do expect their leaders to control their borders. And if you don't, then you just play into the hands of the anti-immigrant, anti-foreigner, right-wing populism. It's a big issue now. You know, it's it's kind of, it's, it's pretty well well managed in Australia at the moment, but the... Um, I do they, think they really they really got themselves out of control. They got it got out of control in Europe and the consequences are still continuing there. I think there's a problem in that we we're trying to live a global life where we were mm. um, prior to COVID and yeah. yet we're not tolerant of immigration. I mean I, I think that that is Well really we, 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 we shouldn't Cheryl, we, we shouldn't beat ourselves up on this, you know. I mean we, we Australians are great knockers, particularly of themselves. But we are the most successful multicultural society in the world. Without, oh, I agree. Without, my, my parents are Lebanese. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, I mean, the bottom line is, um, well, you know, you're, you're part of the 50-plus percent of Australians who've got at least one parent born overseas. 
But over about 30% of Australians themselves were born overseas. And, you know, unlike most countries that have large immigrant populations, ours come from every corner of the world. You know, Israel often, Israelis will often say they have a very large percentage of migrants, but they're all Jewish, Mm. right? Mm. Uh, They've at least got that in common. Our immigrant population is is literally from every corner of the world, Mm. every religion. And that has been a gigantic achievement. And, and so I, I think one of the ways you maintain that and the support for it is by, you know, being able to control your own borders and, of course, have a, a strong humanitarian program, refugee program, but obviously be one that the government manages. But, yeah, anyway. I, I, I do think, and, you know, you don't have to comment on this, but I do think it's quite funny that um, a government that is so, um, uh, that one, if you like, on border control, uh, let the Ruby Princess in. Oh, I, well, well, Cheryl. I mean, couldn't even stop that, right? Cheryl, Cheryl, the, the, uh, look, I think the Australian governments, particularly, you know, states and territories as well as the feds, have done a pretty good job with COVID. I, I do too. I think you've got to say yes, that. That's been I well do too. But... There has been one, there was one major mistake. Uh, There probably were others, but there was one major mistake, which was that the cruise ship industry should have been shut down from early February. I mean, Mm. the Ruby Princess is one thing that obviously should never have happened, shouldn't have sailed, you know, it was crazy. But, you know, from the time that Diamond Princess contagion uh, blew up in Tokyo, I think, uh, on February 4. From that point on, it was obvious that these cruise ships were floating petri dishes, right? Mm. So they had the ideal environment for infection and the most vulnerable demographic, mm. no, older agree. people. I agree. So, and apparently they're selling tickets now for August. But oh, anyway. yeah. Oh. Anyway, now. Well, yeah, I, I wanna... take it you're not one of them. You haven't <laughs> no, bought a ticket. No, no, and I never would anyway. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. One of my favorite parts of the book, and as you've, you've probably got a sense now that I do operate from emotion because you've made reference to it, but one of my favorite parts of the book was Lucy. Oh, good. When you spoke about your wife. Yeah, it's one of um, my favourite parts of the book too. Yeah, and I really do love the relationship, the way you describe the relationship and yeah. how Lucy is an equal. It made me think about Julia Gillard and it made me think about women in politics and I wanted to know your view on how we handled that. Well, well, okay, let's, let's deal with the first thing. Um, women are very unfairly treated in politics. Uh, they, it is the, like a lot of our institutions, politics, our political institutions, our parliaments, 
are designed for men with wives. You know that great book mm-hmm. of um, Annabelle Crabbe's The Wife yes. Drought? Yes, Absolutely spot on. And, I mean, you know, the, 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 um, it is... So, so that's that's how that's that's how they were designed, and and that's hardly surprising. They were designed at a time when women didn't have the vote, let alone stand for parliament. So you've got that fundamental problem, and and but now our parliaments, particularly the federal parliament, is a very difficult institution for actually for women and for men, uh, because you're away from home at least a third of the year. I mean, it's a strange, isolating building. Lucy, the insights into the way in which parliaments form does not follow function, but rather frustrates it. There's quite a bit about that in the book, which is really Lucy's insights, uh, because she's got a great understanding of, of architecture and planning and all of those urban issues. It's, it's sort of her specialty. But I think women are, uh, are insufficiently respected in politics. I think the culture in Parliament, the blokey culture, is more akin to corporate Australia in the 1980s. You know, the controversy about my saying that ministers shouldn't sleep with their staff, um, mm. which, I mean, has been a no-no in the corporate world for many decades. Mm. You know, this, this was regarded as an unreasonable intrusion into people's uh, private lives, you know, by many people in Parliament. I mean, just, wow. It was like I felt I was on a different planet sometimes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and the, I mean, like the criticism, I mean, the, the whole way uh, the media focuses on women's appearance all the time. I mean, I write in the book that, you know, the, the way in which, you know, there was all of this criticism of Julia Gillard and what she wore, all of the comments about her bottom, um, you know, uh, even even by that uh, great feminist Jermaine Greer, for heaven's sake. Oh, rubbish. And yet, and yet, you know, how many people write about poli- male politicians, you know, having big guts or being fat or being overweight or, you know. I, I feel that. I mean, she- no, you, you never, yeah. I, you never, I cannot, I'm just trying to racking my brain now. I'm struggling to think of a contemporary comment on a male politician's appearance. Mm. But I do think it was worse. I mean, it was pre-Me Too and the anger and bitterness and the... I I even think that most Australian journalists missed the misogyny speech until it came back to us via The Guardian. Ah, well, let me tell you, I'll give you a little... So I I write about the misogyny speech in the book, you know. Mm. So I was sitting there, you know, obviously on the opposition benches when she gave it. And I could feel every line of that speech. It was sort of hitting me, mm. you know. I mean, it was obviously directed at Abbott, but I was kind of, I could feel how powerful it was. And I knew I was sitting through one of the great speeches in the parliament. I mean, it was a great speech given in support of an utterly unworthy cause, Peter Slipper, I might say, but that's just that's a footnote. Anyway, after the speech, a number of my colleagues said to me, oh, what a terrible speech, what a disaster, why did she do that? And I looked at them and I said, are you kidding? That was magnificent. You know, you didn't like hearing it, but it was, and, and it was, you're dead right. I mean, the, gal- the press gallery thought she'd lost the plot. Mm-hmm. All the men there were thinking, oh, what a crazy speech. Mm-hmm. You know? And honestly, the 
So it was just yeah. an example. It had to come to us via overseas. Well, I, I had, I, I tell you, I wasn't in that category. Mm-hmm. I knew. No, neither was I. I knew it was, it was amazing at the time. You know, when she said, you know, referring to Abbott, she said, if he wants to know what misogyny looks like in modern Australia, he doesn't need a motion in the House of Representatives. He needs a mirror. Mm. I mean, <laughs> that was just, mm. that, was, that was deadly. Anyway, it was a great, it was a good speech. But as I say, defending the most uh, indefensible person, uh, Peter Slipper at that point. But still. I, I feel, and I've said this before on this podcast, I feel this country owes her an apology. Well, yeah, well, I mean, I think, I think there's a lot of people that do. I think, uh, you know, the the whole, I don't think the country owes her an apology. I think the, the you know, there are plenty of people that are an apology. You know, the attacks on her were, were, were some of them were quite, were just so sick. And, and vi- I mean, you know, Alan Jones is, you know, is like a serial misogynist. Oh, but, you know, how, just quietly, you know, how is it, I mean, leaving aside that, you know, terrible statement he made that her father had died of shame, you know, which mm-hmm. was just, I mean, I, I cannot understand the mentality of someone that could say something as vile as that, you know, like it is literally, anyway, that's, but there he is, he did that. But then on air, he said that she should be put in a chaff bag and dropped off the heads. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, how is it? Can you imagine, I mean, can you imagine, I mean, Donald Trump says the most terrible things about people and is the most polarising president in the United States. Can you imagine anyone in America saying that the president should be, you know, shot or, you know, put in a sack and dropped off the coast? I mean, it's just, it's just like even someone who engages in, in you know, pretty violent rhetoric himself. It's just like it, I, I thought it was. I thought it was just appalling, and I don't think he would say that about um, a woman. I mean, there's a very, a very brilliant woman, American woman called Audrey Zebelman, who is the chief executive of the Australian Energy Market Operator, AEMO. She's she's that body, that you know, entity, essentially keeps the grid going, you know, in the national electricity market. And Audrey's a, uh, a New Yorker and she had a similar job there and she's doing this job and she's doing it brilliantly. Because she believes in climate change and takes renewables seriously and believes we've got to transition to uh, renewables and storage away from burning coal, Jones didn't like her. And he some of the broadcasts he made about her were just unreal, you know, that sort of and always going on about that woman, this woman, mm-hmm. as though he was resentful. Mm. That a woman was in a position of authority, mm. hatred you know, and, and greed. That, you know, yeah, and that, yeah. that, that's there. So anyway. Hate, hatred and greed. Um, let's segue. <laughs> let's segue um, to Rupert Murdoch. Um, yeah. Because there were, you know, not kind words about him in there either and about the Murdoch media. I think you were kind to actually call them a political organisation. I actually think that they're there for to acquire personal wealth at the expense of the entire population. Well, they're not doing a very good job at it. I mean, yes, they've made a lot of money, the Murdochs, or Rupert has, for the benefit of his family, but his businesses are in economic retreat. 
because of competition from you know the big platforms like Google and Facebook and others. But but I think it no I, well yeah I mean that's a that's a, a view. I I think um, the real the real problem is that a lot of people seek to particularly on the left and, and this is good sort of Marxist economics seek to explain power and the exploitation of power as economically motivated. Mm-hmm. You know? That is imputing a rationality to that often doesn't exist. Power is in the hands of wealthy people, is a, and many people, is a like an end in itself. It's a turn-on. You know, it's, a, it's an aphrodisiac. And so wealthy people want to exercise power for its own sake and they resent politicians who do not do their bidding not because their bidding is necessarily self-interested in a straightforward economic sense you know lower my taxes give me a grant give this contract or something like that but because rather they just want to be in control and so there's a quite a discussion in the book about that I mean I've been very close to a lot of these people over many years so I'm not a theorist and you know with with Murdoch I mean, there he is, you know, this titan of the media world. And what is he most famous for, his media most famous for, opposing effective action on climate change? I mean, what a disgrace. What a legacy, you know, and he's the principal apologist and supporter of Trump. Yeah. Who's doing such a great job, not, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, particularly now during the virus pandemic, and was absolutely in the vanguard of Brexit. You so know. why? Why? You, well, you well I, 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 the climate stuff I cannot explain because he does not own coal mine or oil well as far as I'm aware. Uh, so I have, I cannot, I think it, this, it has become, climate change has become for the populist right a values issue. Now, I can understand gay marriage being a values issue, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, it, and I guess it is a values issue. But climate change? I mean, global warming, it's a matter of physics. I mean, that, but, you know, this anti-science thing, Cheryl, is absolutely part of the craziness of this right-wing populism. I mean, you've seen this, you know, like it's, it, you know, there are all of these threads. It connects to the anti-vaxxers. It connects to the, you know, look at, well, look at the people, including Trump uh, for a while, who were poo-pooing the concerns about the COVID virus, you know, and saying, oh, yeah. oh it's just a cold Fox News. Mm-hmm. was, uh, And, you know, the, some of the Murdoch uh, outlets here were doing the same thing, trying to play it down. Oh, it's nothing to worry about. It's, you know, this is just no more than a common or garden flu. And then they got mugged by biology, basically, and body bags started piling up. They had to realise how stupid they were. But it's the same thing with climate change, and yet the the real impact of it doesn't seem to change their mind. So as I write in the book, you know, during this last terrible summer that we had, well, it was really a terrible winter, spring and summer, but with all, you know, millions of hectares being burnt, you had terrible fires on one side of a Murdoch tabloid and on the other side, columns are pouring scorn on Greta Thunberg mm-hmm. and attacking her. Mm-hmm. So she was misguided. Mm. And they were trying to blame it on individuals. They were trying to blame it on arsonists. I know, which was was laughable, absolutely laughable to the point that James Murdoch, the the son who was 
Yeah. You know, no longer... Uh, the prodigal in, son. <laughs> well, he's no longer in command. He's been sort of yeah. sidelined. He, uh, you know, James basically had to put out a statement essentially dissociating himself from it. I mean, it's it's not just wrong, it's dangerous, it's embarrassing, but it's a very, it's a, it is a, it's a real problem. And, and you know, as Brexit's in, like, here's the thing with Brexit, you know, and I mean, I'm, obviously I know it's a done deal, da-da-da, you know, there's nothing you can, you're not, they're not going to wind it back. Uh, but I did an interview with the BBC earlier in the year and we got on to Brexit. And I'm a great believer in not telling other people how to run their countries, right? So, Good I, strategy, yeah. Yeah, good strategy. Yes, we're, <laughs> flat out, we're flat out running our own, let yeah. alone other people. Yeah. But, but I just made the observation that at a time of rising protectionism, Britain had chosen to leave the largest free trade zone in the world. Mm-hmm. That's the only thing I said. That, that statement, which is a statement of fact, became this, you know, big controversial thing. Everyone's going, good grief, is that true? Is that right? And you feel like saying, well, that's like me saying, in the morning the sun comes up, you know. Mm-hmm. So the, the, there's a lot of denialism around and a lot of magical thinking and this denial of science and economics. I mean, you, that's why I used to say with climate policy and energy policy, we should be guided by engineering and economics, not ideology and idiocy. You look at COVID and you look at, you know, um, we take the people off the planet and the environment comes back. I mean, there's no denying it. I wonder what the spin's going to be now. We're seeing, you know, pollution levels drop. We're seeing oceans become blue. We're seeing changes. And, you know, to me, it surprised me in such a short period of time. I always wondered, is it repairable? And it seems that it is repairable, the damage we've done. Yeah, well, yes. I mean, yes, it is. The planet, it is repairable, but but over a very long time frame, you know. Yeah, but we're seeing a bit of hope during this time. Yeah, well, I look, I I mean, there are a couple of things we've got going. I mean, the, the big thing we've got going for us, I think, is this, that we are now in a position, thanks to improved technology. We are now in a position where we can genuinely and realistically generate all of the electricity we need and energy we need with zero emission sources, right? That's a fact. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we can do that actually cheaper than we can by, than by burning coal. That's the second fact. And so what that means is that there is now no excuse. And so what we need to do is to plan the transition. And you've got, of course, you've got to plan it. I mean, you can't shut down a, a stinking old 2,000-megawatt coal-fired power station, shut it down on Monday and without having put in place all of the, you know, the new energy sources to pick up the gap. You know, I mean, if you do that, you'll get exactly what happened when Hazelwood closed, you know, huge spike in wholesale energy electricity prices. So you've got to plan it all. Uh, but that's, again, that's very straightforward. And I think people like Audrey that I mentioned earlier are, you know, really playing a major role in ensuring that the planning is there. But we honestly, it's just a question of getting over the ideology and the sort of the religion almost that some people have about coal and uh, phasing it out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it's, it's you know, we'll, we'll all benefit from it because believe me, we'll, Australia can have the, pretty much the cheapest electricity in the world because we've got such a gigantic solar resource. You know, we've got lots of real estate, lots of real estate of very of relatively low value, 
and uh, lots of sunshine. Now, we're just, I want to end on a hopefully a positive note. Good. Um, so uh, here we are, we're coming, maybe, we're coming out of COVID, we're coming out yep. of isolation. Um, yep. It's been a monumental shift globally. Yep. There's lots of conversation about whether we will come out the same at the other end. Mm-hmm. What's your view on that? Okay, I well, I think we will, things won't be as different as a lot of people fear, but... Or hope. Or or hope. I'll make a couple of observations. Okay. Um, I think it is very clear that some existing trends will be accelerated. So the trend away from bricks and mortar retail to e-commerce has been accelerated and will continue to accelerate. I think the trend towards teleworking, if that's the right term, you know, doing what we're doing, will be accelerated. I mean, a lot of people have got used to this. You know, you can imagine if you had a business in the city and you had three three or four floors of an office building, you might be saying, well, maybe I only need one or two because not everyone's going to be coming in here five days a week, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that's probably not good time to be long commercial property, I would say. I think that uh, all of the you know, the decline of traditional mass media has just been accelerated and that's going to continue. What I'm really interested in is what are the existing trends that could be diverted or disrupted or reversed? You know, we've seen a strong trend to greater density in cities, Mm -hmm. which I applaud because it's more sustainable, frankly. You know, the greenest city in the United States is New York, actually. And it's also the healthiest because people walk, walk, get the subway, walk up the stairs, down the stairs. Well, the healthiest stuff. until now, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's my point. Mm. So, so is that going to reverse? Now, hopefully we cure the, you know, we find a cure or a vaccine for the virus. But, you know, how long is it going to be before people are comfortable about getting the subway again? And you know, you've got, I mean, for example, you've got uh, at the office building where my office in town is, is, um, you know, currently, which I, we're not working in the office at the moment, haven't been for weeks, the building manager say you can only have two people in a lift. Well, that's okay when hardly anyone's going into the office. Mm. Once people start going in, if you say only two people in the lift, you're going to have a complete scrum in the lift lobby. Well, it'll take so, you all day to get upstairs. Yeah, right. So. Yeah. So, you know, how we, what does this all mean for the way we work? Uh, what is it, what's it going to mean for travel? I mean, let's say if, as I'm sure, people who've been having board meetings and conferences on, you know, on Zoom or some other application say, well, why am I trudging out to the airport, getting on a plane, you know, getting into another cab, going to a meeting, and then doing the whole thing to get home again? when I could just do it on, on Zoom. I mean, one of the, you know, I tell you, one of the sort of controversial decisions of mine that, that you know, that uh, I've been, always been criticised about, which has been proved to be absolutely right, was the way we approached the NBN. You mm. know, if we had stuck to Labor's plan on the NBN, which was very unrealistic, I have to say, um, the project would be maybe 50, maybe a bit more percent finished Whereas now, virtually everyone in Australia has broadband, has high-speed broadband. Now, 
a lot of people feel would like to have higher speeds, but you don't need, you know, 100 megs, let alone 1,000 megs to do a Zoom call. Mm. Uh, but, you know, if, if we had half the country on ADSL, Oh, you, you, we would not be able. We would not be able no. to do this. You know. No. So 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 you know. Anyway, there it is. What I, about I, employment and unemployment? I mean, are you worried about well, what? I'm very worried. How it I mean, out? I'm worried yeah. that we're going to have massive unemployment. I'm worried mm. that the impact of this crisis is going to be overwhelmingly on people on lower incomes. They're feeling it hardest, particularly on younger people. And you know, there are a lot of sectors that are big employers hospitality is going to be one of the last to reopen. Retailing, uh, which is being hit from both directions, both from a you know, virus-related area that people don't want to have lots of stores, you know, crowded stores, but also because of the move to e-commerce. We're going to have to make sure that uh, as our economy comes out of this, that we are promoting innovation, that we are promoting as much entrepreneurship and enterprise because we are going to need new jobs to replace jobs, old jobs that are being overtaken by events. So it's going to be the, I think a couple of years from now, people will look back and say the intense stage of the pandemic from a policy point of view was the easiest to deal with Mm. because, you know, everyone knows what they need to do, which is quarantines of one form or another, plus the medical responses and wage support. But in the longer term, how you deal with the economic impact, particularly because we're not entirely sure what that impact will be, is going to be the hardest part of it. Mm. All right, Malcolm Turnbull. Thanks, Cheryl. Good to talk to you. Really good to talk to you. It's been a, a real privilege. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audio books are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.